0: Chapter Seven of the Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Roddy. The Social History of Smoking by G. L. Apperson, I. S. O. Chapter Seven: Smoking Unfashionable Early Georgian Days. Lord Fopling smokes not. For his teeth afraid sir tawdry smokes not for he wears brocade isaac hawkins brown circa seventeen forty with the reign of queen anne tobacco had entered on a period destined to be of long duration when smoking was to a very large extent under a social ban pipe-smoking was unfashionable that is to say was not practiced by men of fashion and was for the most part regarded as low or provincial from the time named until well into the reign of queen victoria the social taboo was by no means universal some of the exceptions will be noted in these pages but speaking broadly The general, almost universal smoking of tobacco, which had been characteristic of the earlier decades of the seventeenth century, did not again prevail until within living memory. Throughout the eighteenth century the use of tobacco for smoking was largely confined to the middle and humbler classes of society. To smoke was characteristic of the sit of the country squire of the clergy especially of the country parsons and of those of lower social status but at the same time it must be borne in mind that then as since the dictates of fashion and the conventions of society were little regarded by many artists and men of letters in the preceding chapter i quoted from addison's diary of a retired tradesman in the spectator of seventeen twelve The periodical publications of a generation or so later paid the great essayist the flattery of imitation, in this respect as in others. In the connoisseur of George Coleman and Bonnell Thornton, for instance, there is, in 1754, the description of a citizen's Sunday. The good man, having sent his family to church in the morning, goes off himself to Mother Redcap's, a favorite tavern, suburban in those days, or house of call for city tradesmen. There he smokes half a pipe, and drinks a pint of ale. In the evening, at another tavern, he smokes a pipe, and drinks two pints of cider, winding up the inane day at his club, where he smokes three pipes before coming home at twelve to go to bed and sleep soundly. The weekend habit was strong among London tradesmen in those days, another connoisseur paper of seventeen fifty four refers to the citizens country boxes as dusty retreats because they were always built in close contiguity to the highway so that the inhabitants could watch the traffic in the absence of anything more sensible to do where the want of london smoke is supplied by the smoke of virginia tobacco and where our chief citizens are accustomed to pass the end and the beginning of every week in the following year there is a description of a visit to vauxhall by a worthy citizen with his wife and two daughters after supper the poor man sadly laments that he cannot have his pipe because his wife with social ambitions deems that it is ungenteel to smoke where any ladies are in company again in the connoisseur's rival the world founded and conducted by edward moore there is a letter in the number dated february nineteen seventeen fifty six from a citizen who says i have the honor to be a member of a certain club in this city where it is a standing order that the paper called the world be constantly brought upon the table with clean glasses pipes and tobacco every thursday after dinner the country gentlemen of the time followed the hounds and enjoyed rural sports of all kinds drank ale and smoked tobacco they had their smoking-rooms too walter gale schoolmaster at mayfield sussex noted in his journal under date march twenty sixth seventeen fifty one i went to mr baker's for the list of scholars and found him alone in the smoking-room He ordered a pint of mild beer for me, an extraordinary thing. Gale himself was a regular smoker, and too fond of pints of ale. Fielding has immortalized the squire of the mid-eighteenth century in his picture of that sporting, roaring, swearing, drinking, smoking, affectionate, irascible, blundering, altogether extraordinary owner of broad acres squire western we may shrewdly suspect that the portrait of western is somewhat over-coloured and cannot fairly be taken as typical but there is sufficient evidence to show that in some respects at least in his enthusiasm for sport and love of ale and tobacco western is representative of the country squires of his day in a world of seventeen fifty five there is a description of a noisy hearty drinking devil-may-care country gentleman in which it is said he makes no scruple to take his pipe and pot at an ale-house with the very dregs of the people in a connoisseur of seventeen fifty four a fine gentleman from london making a visit in a country house is taking his breakfast with the ladies in the afternoon when they had their tea for says he i should infallibly have perished had i stayed in the hall amidst the jargon of toasts and the fumes of tobacco when horace walpole was staying with his father at his norfolk country-seat houghton in september seventeen thirty seven gray wrote to him from cambridge you are in a confusion of wine, and roaring, and hunting, and tobacco, and heaven be praised, you too can pretty well bear it. But Gray had no objection to tobacco. He lived at Cambridge, and the dons and residents there, as at Oxford, not to speak of the undergraduates, were as partial to their pipes as the men who went out from among them to become country parsons, and to share the country squire's liking for tobacco. Gray wrote to Wharton from Cambridge, in April 1749, saying, "'Time will settle my conscience, time will reconcile me to this languid companion, and we, we shall smoke, we shall tipple, we shall doze together.' A STRIKING PICTURE OF UNIVERSITY LIFE IN THE SLEEPY DAYS OF THE 18TH CENTURY. GRACE'S TESTIMONY BY NO MEANS STANDS ALONE. IN NOVEMBER, 1730, ROGER NORTH WROTE TO HIS SON MONTAGUE, THEN AN UNDERGRADUATE AT CAMBRIDGE, SAYING, I WOULD LOATHE YOU SHOULD CONFIRM THE SCANDAL CHARGED UPON THE UNIVERSITIES OF LEARNING, CHIEFLY TO SMOKE AND TO DRINK. At Oxford in early Georgian days a profound calm, so far as study was concerned, appears to have prevailed. Little work was done, but much tobacco was smoked. In 1733 a satire was published violently attacking the fellows of various colleges. According to this satirist, the occupation of the Magdalen fellow was to drink, look big, "'Smoke Much, Think Little, Curse the Free-Born Whig,' from which it may not unreasonably be surmised that the author was a Tory. And however little enthusiasm there may have been at Oxford in those days for learning and study, there was plenty of life in political animosities. Another witness to the Don's love of tobacco is Thomas Wharton. In his Progress of Discontent, Written in 1746, he plaintively sang, Return, ye days, when endless pleasure I found in reading or in leisure, When calm around the common room I puffed my daily pipe's perfume, Rode for a stomach and inspected, at annual bottlings, corks selected, And dined untaxed, untroubled, under the portrait of our pious founder. Wharton, and another Oxford smoker of some distinction, the Reverend William Crow, who was public orator from 1784 to 1829, are both said to have been, like Pryor, rather fond of frequenting the company of persons of humble rank and little education, with whom they would drink their ale and smoke their pipes. Mr. A. D. Godley, in his Oxford in the Eighteenth Century gives an excellent english version of the latin original of one of the christ church carmina quadragesmalia which affords much the same picture of the daily life of an oxford fellow in the days when george the First was king this good man lives strictly by rule and each returning day ne'er swerves a hair breadth from the same old way always within the memory of men he's risen at eight and gone to bed at ten the same old cat his college room partakes the same old scout his bed each morning makes on mutton roast he daily dines in state whole flocks have perished to supply his plate takes just one turn to catch the westering sun then reads the paper as he's always done soon cracks in common room the same old jokes, drinking three glasses ere three pipes he smokes. And what he did while Charles our throne did fill, neath George's air you'll find him doing still. It seems to have been taken for granted that country parsons smoked. Smoking was universal among their male parishioners, from the squire to the laborer, when he could afford it, so that it was only natural that the parson, with little to do, and in those days not too much inclination to do it, should be as fond of his pipe as the rest of the world around him. In a world of 1756 there is an account of a country gentleman entertaining one evening the vicar of the parish, and the host as a matter of course proceeds to order a bottle of wine with pipes and tobacco to be placed on the table the vicar forthwith filled his pipe and drank very cordially to my friend his host one cannot doubt that lawrence stern that most remarkable of country parsons smoked his my uncle toby is among the immortals and toby without his pipe is unimaginable the most famous of country clergymen of the early georgian period is of course fielding's lovable and immortal parson adams throughout joseph andrews the parson smokes at every opportunity at his first appearance on the scene in the inn kitchen he calls for a pipe of tobacco before taking his place at the fireside The next morning, when he fails to obtain a desired loan from the landlord, Adams, extremely dejected at his disappointment, immediately applies to his pipe, his constant friend and comfort in his affliction, and leans over the rails of the gallery overlooking the inn-yard, devoting himself to meditation, assisted by the inspiring fumes of tobacco later on in the parlour of the country justice of the peace who condemned his prisoners before he had taken the depositions of the witnesses against them and who by the way also lit his pipe while his clerk performed this necessary duty adams when his character has been cleared sits down with the company and takes a cheerful glass and applies himself vigorously to smoking a few hours later when the parson, Fanny, and their guide are driven by a storm of rain to take shelter in a wayside alehouse, Adams immediately procured himself a good fire, a toast and ale, and a pipe, and began to smoke with great content, utterly forgetting everything that had happened. In the same inn, after Mrs. Slipslop has appeared and disappeared, Adams smokes three pipes and takes a comfortable nap in a great chair so leaving the lovers joseph and fanny to enjoy a delightful time together at another inn a country squire is discovered smoking his pipe by the door and the parson promptly joins him again he smokes before he goes to bed and before he breakfasts the next morning and when he goes into the inn garden with the host who is willing to trust him both Host and Parson light their pipes before beginning to gossip. Farther on, when the hospitable Mr. Wilson takes the weary wayfarers in, Parson Adams loses no time in filling himself with ale, as Fielding puts it, and lighting his pipe. The menfolk, Wilson, Adams, and Joseph, have to spend the night seated round the fire, but apparently Adams is the only one who seeks the solace of tobacco. It is significant that Wilson, in telling the story of his dissipated early life, classes smoking with singing, hollowing, wrangling, drinking, toasting, and other diversions of jolly companions. There is no mention of Parson Trelliber's pipe but that pig-breeder and lover can hardly have been a non-smoker. Both the other clerical characters who appear in the book, the Roman Catholic priest who makes an equivocal appearance in the eighth chapter of the third book, and parson Barnabas, who thinks that his own sermons are at least equal to Tillotson's, smoke their pipes... The other smokers in Joseph Andrews are the surgeon and the excise man, who, early in the story, are found sitting in the inn-kitchen with Parson Barnabas, smoking their pipes over some cider end. the mysterious cup being a mixture of cider and something spirituous. And Joseph's father, old gaffer Andrews, who appears at the end of the story, and complains bitterly that he wants his pipe, not having had a whiff that morning. Fielding himself smoked his pipe. When his play, The Wedding Day, was produced by Garrick in 1743, various suggestions were made to the author as to the excision of certain passages and the modifications of one of the scenes. Garrick pressed for certain omissions, but— "'No, damn them,' said Fielding, If the scene is not a good one, let them find that out. And then, according to Murphy, he retired to the green room, where, during the progress of the play, he smoked his pipe and drank champagne. Presently he heard the sound of hissing, and when Garrick came in and explained that the audience had hissed the scene he had wished to have modified, all Fielding said was, "'Oh, damn them! They have found it out, have they?' Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, the crafty old Jacobite who took part in the rising of 1745, and who was executed on Tower Hill in 1747, was a smoker. The pipe which he was reported to have smoked on the evening before his execution, together with his snuff-box and a canvas tobacco-bag, were for many years in the possession of the Society of Codgers, the famous debating society of Fleet Street. It has sometimes been said that Swift smoked. But this is a mistake. He had a fancy for taking tobacco in a slightly different way from the fashionable mode of taking snuff. He told Stella that he had left off snuff altogether, and then, in the very next sentence, remarked that he had a noble roll of tobacco for grading, very good. And in a later letter to Stella, May twenty fourth, 1711, He asked if she still snuffed, and went on to say, in sentences that seemed to contradict one another, "'I have left it off, and when anybody offers me their box, I take about a tenth part of what I used to do, then just smell to it, and privately fling the rest away. I keep my tobacco still, as you say, but even much less of that than formerly, only mornings and evenings, and very seldom in the day.' One might infer from this that he smoked, but this Swift never did. His practice was to snuff up cut and dried tobacco, which was sometimes just coloured with Spanish snuff. This he did all his life, but as the mixture he took was not technically snuff, he never owned that he took snuff. Another cleric of the period, well known to fame, who took snuff but also loved his pipe— was Samuel Wesley, rector of Epworth, Lincolnshire, from 1697 to 1735. He not only smoked his pipe, but sang its praises. In these raw mornings, when I'm freezing ripe, what can compare with the tobacco pipe? Primed, cocked, and touched? twould better heat a man than ten bath faggots or scotch warming-pan. Samuel's greater son, John Wesley, did not share the parental love of a pipe. He spoke of the use of tobacco as an uncleanly and unwholesome self-indulgence, and described snuffing as a silly, nasty, dirty custom. The London clergy seemed to have smoked at one time, as a matter of course, at their gatherings at Sion College, their headquarters. An entry in the records under date February fourteenth, sixteen eighty two, relating to a court meeting, runs: Paid Maddox the messenger for attending, and pipes, sixpence. How long pipes continued to be concomitants of the meetings of the college's general court, I cannot say, but smoking and the annual dinners were long associated. At the anniversary feast in 1743 there were two tables to provide for, the total number of guests being about thirty, and two courses to each. The cost of the food, as Canon Pierce tells us in his excellent and entertaining book on the college and its library, was nineteen pounds fifteen shilling, or rather more than thirteen shillings a head. The bill for wines and tobacco amounted to five guineas, or about three shillings sixpence a head, and for this modest sum the thirty convives enjoyed eleven gallons of red oporto, one of white lisbon, and three of mountain, to the accompaniment of two pounds of tobacco, at three shilling fourpence the pound, smoked in half a gross of pipes, at one shilling. The examples and illustrations which have been given so far in this chapter relate to tradesmen and merchants, country gentlemen and the clergy. Other professional men smoked. We read in Fielding's Amelia of a doctor who in the evening smoked his pillow-pipe, as the phrase is, and among the rest of the people of equal or lower social standing, smoking was as generally practised as in the preceding century. Handel, I may note, enjoyed his pipe, dr burney when a schoolboy at chester was extremely curious to see so extraordinary a man so when handel went through that city in seventeen forty one on his way to ireland young burney watched him narrowly as long as he remained in chester and among other things had the felicity of seeing the great man smoke a pipe over a dish of coffee at the exchange coffee-house which was under the old town hall that stood opposite the present king's school and in front of the present town hall gonzalez in his voyage to great britain in seventeen thirty one says that the use of tobacco was very universal and indeed not improper for so moist a climate he tells us that though the taverns were very numerous yet the ale-houses were much more so these ale-houses were visited by the inferior tradesmen mechanics journeymen porters coachmen carmen servants and others whose pockets were not equal to the price of a glass of wine which apparently was the most usual thing to call for at a tavern properly so called in the ale-house men of the various classes and occupations enumerated says the traveller would sit promiscuously in common dirty rooms with large fires and clouds of tobacco where one that is not used to them can scarce breathe or see the antiquary Hearn has left on record an account of a curious smoking match held at oxford in seventeen twenty three it began at two o'clock in the afternoon on september four on a scaffold specially erected for the purpose over against the theatre in Oxford, just at Finmore's, an alehouse. The conditions were that any one man or woman who could smoke out three ounces of tobacco first without drinking or going off the stage should have twelve shillings. Many tried, continues Hearn. "'and twas thought that a journeyman tailor of St. Peter's in the East "'would have been victor, he smoking faster than "'and being many pipes before the rest. "'But at last he was so sick that twas thought he would have died, "'and an old man that had been a soldier and smoked gently "'came off conqueror, smoking the three ounces quite out, "'and he told one, from whom I had it, that after it he smoked four or five pipes the same evening the old soldier was a well-seasoned veteran another foreign visitor to england the abbe leblanc who was over here about seventeen thirty found english customs rather trying even a table he says where they serve desserts they do but show them and presently take away everything even to the tablecloth By this the English, whom politeness does not permit to tell the ladies their company is troublesome, give them notice to retire. The table is immediately covered with mugs, bottles, and glasses, and often with pipes of tobacco. All things thus disposed, the ceremony of toasts begins. The frowns and demonstrances of quarterly and monthly meetings of friends had not succeeded in putting the Quakers pipes out. In a list of sea stores put on board a vessel called by an un-Quaker-like name of the Charming Polly, which brought a party of friends across the Atlantic from Philadelphia in 1756, we find, in Samuel Fothergill's new chest, tobacco, a hamper, a barrel, a box of pipes— the Provident Samuel was well found for a long voyage. The non smokers were the men of fashion and those who followed them in preferring the snuff box to the pipe. Sometimes, apparently, they chewed. A world of seventeen fifty four pokes fun at the pretty young men who take pains to appear manly, but alas, the methods they pursue, like most mistaken applications, rather aggravate the calamity. Their drinking and raking only makes them look like old maids. Their swearing is almost as shocking as it would be in the other sex. Their chewing tobacco not only offends, but makes us apprehensive at the same time that the poor things will be sick, as they certainly well deserve to be. To chew might be manly, but it will be observed that smoking is not mentioned. No reputation for manliness could be achieved by even the affectation of a pipe. Similarly, in Bramston's Man of Taste, various fashionable tastes are described, but there is no mention of tobacco. In Townley's well-known two-act farce, High Life Below Stairs, 1759, the servants take their masters' and mistresses' titles, and ape their ways. The manservants, the dukes and Sir Harry's, offer one another snuff. "'Taste this snuff, Sir Harry,' says the Duke, 'Tis "'Tis could rappy,' replies Sir Henry. "'Right Strasbourg, I assure you, and of my own importing,' says the knowing ducal valet. "'The city people adulterated so confoundedly.' he continues, that I always import my own snuff, and in similar vein he goes on in imitation of his master, the genuine duke. These servants copy the talk and style, with a difference, of their employers, but smoking is never mentioned. The real dukes and Sir Harry's took snuff with the grace, but they did not do anything so low as to smoke, and their manservants faithfully ape their preferences and their aversions. Negative evidence of this kind is abundant, and positive statements of the aversion of the bull from smoking are not lacking. Dodsley's collection contains a satirical poem called A Pipe of Tobacco, which was written in imitation of six different poets. The author was Isaac Hawkins Brown and the poets imitated were the laureate Sipper, Phillips, Thomson, Young, Pope, and Swift. The first imitation is called A New Year's Ode, and contains three recitatives, three airs, and a chorus. One of the airs will suffice as a sample. Happy mortal! He who knows pleasure which a pipe bestows... Curling eddies climb the room, wafting round a mild perfume. Number 2, which was intended as a burlesque of Philip's splendid shilling, is really pretty and must be given entire. It reveals unsuspected beauties in the simple churchwarden or yard of clay. Little tube of mighty power, charmer of an idle hour, object of my warm desire lip of wax and eye of fire and thy snowy taper waist with my finger gently bracked and thy pretty swelling crest with my little stopper pressed and the sweetest bliss of blisses breathing from thy balmy kisses happy thrice and thrice again happiest he of happy men who, when again the night returns, When again the taper burns, When again the cricket's gay, Little cricket, full of play, Can afford his tube to feed With the fragrant Indian weed. Pleasure for a nose divine, Incense of the god of wine, Happy thrice and thrice again, Happiest he of happy men. Imitations three and five praise the leaf in less happy strains, though number five has a line worth noting for our purpose, in which tobacco is spoken of as, By ladies hated, hated by the beau. The sixth sinks to ribaldry. Number four contains evidence of the distaste for smoking among the bow in the lines, Coxcombs prefer the tickling sting of snuff yet all their claim to wisdom is a puff. Lord Poplin smokes not, for his teeth afraid. Sir Tawdry smokes not, for he wears brocade. Ladies, when pipes are brought, affect to swoon. They love no smoke except the smoke of town. But courtiers hate the puffing-tube no matter, strange if they love the breath that cannot flatter yet crowds remain who still its worth proclaim while some for pleasure smoke and some for fame the satirist wrote truly that after all the fashionable abstainers had been deducted crowds remained who smoked as heartily as their predecessors of a century earlier the populace was still on the side of tobacco this was well shown in seventeen thirty two when sir robert walpole proposed special excise duties on tobacco and brought a bill into parliament which would have given his excisemen powers of inquisition which were much resented by the people generally the controversy produced a host of squibs and caricatures most of which were directed against the measure the bill was defeated in seventeen thirty three and great and general were the rejoicings when the news reached Derby on April nineteenth in that year, the dealers in tobacco caused all the bells in the Derby churches to be rung, and we may be sure that this rather unusual performance was highly popular. The withdrawal of the odious duty was further celebrated by caricatures and poetical chants of triumph. One of the leading opponents of the bill had been a well-known puffing tobacconist named Bradley, who was accustomed to describe his wares as the best in Christendom. And when the bill was defeated, Bradley's portrait was published for popular circulation above these lines. Behold the man who, when a gloomy band of vile excisemen threatened all the land, helped to deliver from their harpy gripe, the cheerful bottle and the social pipe. O rare, Ben Bradley, may for this the bowl, still unexcised, rejoice thy honest soul. May still the best in Christendom for this cleave to thy stopper, and complete thy bliss. This print is now chiefly of interest, because the plate was adorned with a tiny etching by Hogarth in which appeared the figures of the British lion and Britannia, both with pipes in their mouths, Britannia being seated on a cask of tobacco. Hogarth was fond of introducing the pipe into his plates. In the tailpiece to his works, which he prepared a few months before his death, and which he called the bathos, or manner of sinking in sublime paintings, the end of everything is represented." Time himself, supported against a broken column, is expiring, his scythe falling from his grasp, and a long clay pipe breaking in two as it falls from his lips. This was issued in 1764, Hogarth's last published work. In the plate which shows the execution of Thomas Idle in the Industry and Idleness series, Hogarth depicts the little hangman smoking a short pipe, AS HE SITS ON THE TOP OF THE GALLOWS, WAITING FOR HIS VICTIM. THE FAMILIAR PLATE OF A MODERN MIDNIGHT CONVERSATION SHOWS A PARSON IN SURPLICE AND WIG SMOKING LIKE A FURNACE WHILE HE LADLES PUNCH FROM A BOWL, PROBABLY MEANT FOR A PORTRAIT OF THE NOTORIOUS ORATOR HINLEY. MOST OF THE OTHER GUESTS ARE ALSO SHOWN SMOKING LONG clay PIPES. Hogarth's subscription ticket for the print of Sigismunda was Time Smoking a Picture, 1761. It represents an old man sitting on a fragment of statuary and smoking a long pipe against a picture of a landscape which stands upon an easel before him. Below, on his left, is a large jar labelled Varnish. The figure of time is nude and has large wings. Volumes of smoke are pouring against the surface of the picture, from both his mouth and the bowl of his long clay pipe. In the stage-coach, or country inn yard, is shown an old woman smoking a pipe in the basket of the coach. The plate of the distressed poet, 1736, shows four books and three tobacco-pipes on a shelf. In the second of the election series, the canvassing for votes 1755 a barber and a cobbler seated at the table in the right-hand corner are both smoking long pipes apparently they are discussing the taking of portobello by admiral vernon in 1739 with only six ships for the barber is illustrating his talk by pointing with his twisted pipe stem to six fragments which he has broken from the stem and arranged on the table in the shape of a crescent. In the frontispiece which Hogarth drew in 1762 for Garrick's farce of the farmer's return from London, the worthy farmer, seated in his great chair, holds out a large mug in one hand to be filled with ale, while the other supports his long pipe, which he is smoking with evident enjoyment." Hogarth himself was a confirmed pipe-lover. When he and Thornhill, and their three companions, set out from Gravesend for the final stage up the river of their famous five days peregrination, we are told that they hired a boat with clean straw, and laid in a bottle of wine, pipes, tobacco, and light, and so came merrily up the river." The armchair in which Hogarth was wont to sit and smoke is still preserved in his house at Chiswick, which has been bought and preserved as a memorial of the moralist painter, and in the garden of the house may still be seen the remains of the mulberry tree under which Mr. Austin Dobbs suggests that Hogarth and Fielding may have sat and smoked their pipes together in the days when George was king. End of chapter 7